0: You're listening to AtomairMDGED, Underground Cartoon Therapy. What's up, guys? Welcome to the self-appointed Underground Cartoon Therapy episode, where we're going to go back in time... (laughs) In the Wayback Machine, Peabody. Always brought to you by Gorilla Glue. If I can get a hold of the fucking shit, that's what the fuck I'm smoking. You know that. <laughs> From the soundtrack, Ghost World. I don't know who the fuck this shit is. Bollywood prep. It's a cool song.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's what he said. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we got Larry Reed from Fanagraphics running the Fanagraphics bookstore in Georgetown, Seattle. <laughs> He's going to talk to us for an hour about the history of Fanagraphics and the legendary artists that have come out of there, which are crumb. Robert Williams Dan Klaus who did this ghost Will, Peter Bag Charles Burns and a plethora or plethora however the fuck you say it of underground cartoonists will be established in a therapeutical form hence the finalization of the name Underground Cartoon Therapy hope you dig it. Larry's an enriched guy filled with the knowledge of underground comics going back. That's right. He knows it. He knows about it. We're going to talk about what it's like before the virus and after the virus. So please stick around. (laughs) All right, hey guys, welcome back to the show. This is the self-titled Underground Cartoon Therapy Show. Who do I got with me today? Who is this?
1: Larry Reed at Fatographics Bookstore and Gallery in Georgetown.
0: Motherfucker, I feel lucky as shit to be able to talk to you. How are you doing today? <laughs> good, good. All right, hold on. Hey, well, I'll say that since
1: the pandemic hit in in early March, the it's been a real struggle for both uh, uh, retailers and probably uh, more more of a struggle for independent artists that are self-publishing or doing small press, handcrafted books. We typically uh, sell a lot of those. And, and, and uh, given the uh, health advisories, uh, uh, traffic has been significantly down here and I know a lot of uh, a lot of artists have been a lot of artists that don't have sophisticated, you know, online presence have been um, impacted terribly but, uh, you know, we're hanging in there, we're doing everything we can I'm at the store in order to attract visitors, I'm doing everything I can to promote Indie books that are harder to find yeah. uh, online. So you know that's been an attraction. But uh, I, a lot of these, a lot of these comics, these small press comics, I like get people visiting the store, and traffic has just been negligible over the course of the last uh, several months. But you know we're hanging in. There.
0: I like coming in there. I like that I just live two blocks away from you guys. I like this little right. stretch in Georgetown. It does remind me of material that you would find in specifically, like, you know, Dan Klaus' 8-Ball. Uh, right. You know, the, where where we live, would you agree with that? Georgetown's kind of like out of an 8-Ball comic?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, we've, we've cultivated a pretty adventurous audience down here. Uh, the problem is Georgetown is... Relatively isolated, with a very small residential population of about a thousand, you know, a thousand people. We can't uh, we can't sustain a viable business district just by relying on residents. So um yeah, we rely on destination visitors, and it, with the pandemic, that's created uh, major obstacles for uh, all of the. Uh, all of the retailers and restaurants and bars, um, a lot of them, you know, we all are under
0: all the way around restrictions, for, yeah, uh,
1: you know, public health directives, and we follow them faithfully. But uh, it, it's created a bit of a hardship, but again, we're sort of hanging in there. That's that's as much as I can say, hanging in there,
0: man. that's all we're doing too you know uh but i appreciate you we've been in
1: business here for 14 years next month and Mm. and, uh uh you know what's sort of tragic about this is over the last several years we've finally uh fully established uh you know a, a reliable you know revenue stream with uh loyal customers and and primarily visitors from out-of-state tourists and uh and that's been sort of problematic the other thing is we pretty much rely on events on uh book signings talks uh in-store concerts and uh uh other activities that attract people that uh, we haven't been able to for since since March. So that's that's really put a dent in our in our business. But we're hoping to sort of limp through until the uh, these restrictions lift and everybody's healthy and um, we'll get back in the
0: swing of things. I like the sound of that. And you know we're all praying that that's a that comes soon obviously and uh more sooner than later would be nice <laughs> um right. but uh you know i was wondering offhand have you talked to any artists uh directly that are working uh lately just about how they're feeling uh with uh, their lives you know in the virus or anything like that you know um how's it affected well, I, the crew I, I, I have like talked
1: to a lot of artists that that are struggling financially. Um, uh, Particularly since the enhanced uh, um, unemployment uh, benefits have expired, Um, you know, Seattle's become a really expensive place to live. It wasn't always like that. In fact, we had a thriving art scene uh, my entire adult life, largely because it was affordable. But uh, in recent years with the uh, high tech, um, industries, it's, uh, put a lot of economic pressure on, you know, housing and, uh, goods and services. And I, I understand that a lot of, uh, a lot of independent artists are really having a difficult time, you know, adjusting to this new paradigm.
0: Yeah. Um, I know I am, uh, it's been difficult just all the way around. Yeah, <clears throat> Seattle's
1: just not a cheap place to live anymore. I mean Seattle in large uh in large measure gave birth to the current, you know, uh wave of uh alternative comics in, in the eighties when we had artists like Linda Beer and Charles Burns and uh Matt Groening.
0: Yeah. Um, mm-hmm.
1: they were they were syndicating their strips in uh alternative weeklies, and um, they could generate enough income to sort of survive and and even thrive um, in a place that isn't expensive in Seattle, but uh, anymore that's just not doable. So I think a lot of artists were struggling before the pandemic uh, because of You know, uh, economic conditions brought about by the tech boom, and uh, you know we're uh, still having a challenging time sort of dealing with that. Yeah. But uh, we'll we'll survive. I'm confident that uh, things will get back to normal in some you know some period of time. But, you know, it's it's been dicey hanging on by
0: our fingernails. I know it, man. Uh, you know, I've been hanging out lately, and this is like the first time getting to know you guys. Like I said, I appreciate your time on the show, man. And I felt right. like you know, this is definitely a good uh, time to for underground comic book artists specifically out there who are listening to the show. You know, this is what's up. You know, uh, this is the reality of shit. You know, you guys are the publisher of the world's greatest cartoonist. That's what it says yeah, on the we, window. we
1: have a good situation <laughs> here, too. We share space with the record store. And, uh,
0: What's the, up with those guys?
1: The, the two businesses are really symbiotic. You know, comics records are uh, um, really compatible. Uh and we work together on special events with uh, music at the record store and, you know, it's amazing. Uh, yeah. Talks and signings and presentations by the cartoonists. It's been uh, a, sort of a wonderful partnership, but even better. We, we split the rent on this space. Uh, and, uh, you know, we share even staff at some points. Uh, we, we'll just have one staff person with three, for, each, for both stores and uh it makes it affordable um but again in recent months it's been uh it, it, it's been a challenge just to meet expenses
0: yeah no but you guys still have like the most awesome you know books and in stock and they are the world's greatest cartoonists it's no joke
1: yeah well good I, i'm glad you think so we uh you know, I've been working with Vanographic since 1991. I was the I was the marketing and promotions director um, when I went there, and you know, uh, traveled a lot. And after having a child, that I, 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 I traveling wasn't quite as appealing as it mm. as it once was. So mm-hmm. I ended up uh, uh, here at the store, and i I'm just thrilled with uh, having the physical space and the interaction with the public. um, But I was uh, initially attracted to Phantographers through Love and Rockets, actually. I think
0: uh, Hernandez brothers had a profound
1: impact on me, Gilbert and Jaime Hernandez, who have been at the store on several occasions. um, uh, They they sort of really changed the. That was foundational sort of shame the environment for alternative comics on the heels of that success. We had Eight Ball by Daniel Klaus, we were publishing Chris Ware, Peter Bagg, Robert Crumb, of course, and uh, hmm. some of his uh, uh, colleagues from the underground era, and it's just sort of expanded exponentially since then.
0: Uh, You said uh, R. Crum really has been the only one who hasn't shown up to one of the uh, gatherings that you guys have had there.
1: Yeah, Crum is sort of, uh, I I think he's widely acknowledged as sort of uh, the godfather of uh, the uh, underground comics movement and is still highly regarded, though he hasn't lived in the U.S. for oh probably about 30 years 30
0: years uh, yeah i
1: met rob i met, met crumb just before uh uh i went to work in fanagraphics um he was still in northern california and he, uh, he had an art show and he came and visited and uh um it was an art show of under of, uh you know, contemporary comics, that who else came? It was Robert Crumb the Hernandez Brothers. Uh, uh,
0: was Gilbert Sheldon there?
1: And, you know, I mean, the list is sort of endless, but that yeah. kind of launched. You know, that was in 1991. Uh, a few months later, I went to work at Fantagraphics. That was about the time that the Seattle grunge phenomenon was beginning to gain a lot of traction. Um, And, uh, you know, we were largely associated with that. I used to, uh, I frequently uh, equate Seattle in the 90s with San Francisco in the 60s because we had uh, not only great music and and a youth culture, but uh, cartoonists and uh, a whole lot of really talented cartoonists that were here to sort of... uh, Chronicle
0: those developments. Huh. Mm. You know, I, uh, what is some of the more uh, cooler stories in the development of the company like? Was there every any like one instance that just kind of over outstood, you know, the test of time, <laughs> or like you know what I'm saying? Those are like, because there's obviously a lot of developments when you're like dealing with so many creative minds and. You know, uh, are
1: you talking about specific comics or events or?
0: Well, the formulation of Fantagraphics as a public as a publication.
1: Well, Fantagraphics, you know, they they they, they moved here in
0: 1989.
1: Yeah. Um, Publishing from Southern California, I think when they moved here, it was sort of serendipitous because at that point again, this this sort of youth counterculture so it later called grunge was sort of emerging and it was uh um i i, I think with uh it it had a global impact
0: on pop culture, yeah totally
1: having graphics here with uh the record label Sub Pop, who we
0: uh-huh. work closely with and continue to work closely with uh Really
1: created a sort of an atmosphere that uh, was uh, lent itself, to you know, transgressive uh art and music on all levels. So would you
0: say? You know, I would. Suggest oh, sorry, the
1: month that I went to work for Pentagrammics, Nirvana's album Nevermind had been released. And oh yeah, I, and that just that was a game changer. It really shifted focus. <laughs> yeah internationally to to seattle as uh as a, a hub of uh, cultural activity and that had prior to that that had never been the case seattle was sort of this provincial corner of the country that uh very few people were even aware of so you know and 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 i think that lent itself well to uh artists being able to uh develop their craft and Relative obscurity. And uh, again, we had artists like uh, uh, Charles Burns and Linda Berry, both Seattle natives. Uh,
0: Peter Bag, uh,
1: Nearby Evergreen State College with Matt Craning, um, who was from Portland but spent quite a bit of time here. Uh, and uh, it, it, it started when Phenographics moved here, it just started to attract uh, a migration of. You know, counterculture cartoonist to Seattle that uh, again coincided with uh, amazing music that was being produced and, and graphic sensibility and you know fashion or anti-fashion and uh, um, it was it was an exciting time to be in Seattle and I think that Fantagraphics said well I know that Fantagraphics benefited from that association.
0: Um. What about Peter Bagg's role about uh, in that sub pop? You know, lying to wasn't that all related? Yeah, Peter, like Peter Bag,
1: it's almost impossible to overstate Peter Bagg's influence on uh, yeah the uh, development of the, uh, you know, the counterculture comics in the Northwest and beyond. When he moved to Seattle, he was editing an anthology that had started by uh, R. Crumb called Weirdo. Uh huh. And uh, Crumb turned over, over the editorial reins to uh, Peter. I think largely because he wanted uh, Crumb wanted uh, uh, showcase the, uh, a lot of younger cartoonists that were associated with the punk movement. But uh, uh yeah, I think Crumb was sort of you know, reading between the lines, I think Crumb was having a little bit of uh, uh, a difficult time disassociating himself with that artist from the. From the underground era that we associate with the hippie movement, um, right? And uh, I, I think to a great extent, Peter Bag when he turned over the editorship of Weirdo to, to Peter, uh, Peter didn't have those same loyalties and was able to showcase the work of a lot of younger cartoonists that uh, um, were very important and. It was great to have Peter here. He launched in 1990. He launched his hate comic book serial, and uh, it was delightful that that sort of coincided with the uh, grunge phenomenon.
0: Yeah, it was like was, peanut butter and chocolate, man. <laughs>
1: yeah, he was able to, uh, you know, I, I mean, on some level he was, it was a parody of the grunge movement, huh. But Peter really had a lot to do with sort of establishing the, the aesthetics and attitudes of that grunge movement. Um,
0: he did. He and, caught it. Uh, he he caught it in his grunge. line work for sure. You know, he was like, you can see it in his line work. And uh, yeah. that's what I love about the variety. But it, specifically Peter Bag. you know, you can see yeah. that he's a good dude and it's it's a good line and it matches up, you know. He deserved the time. Yeah, well, we, and, for, and, you know. and Peter,
1: artists like Peter and uh, and, and Daniel Clouds were doing uh, graphics and record covers and other uh, um, artwork for Sub Pop. So that was, again, there was nothing really contrived about it. It just sort of, it was just kind of a happy accident that uh, that uh, both Banner Graphics and Sub Pop were sort of coming into their own right about that right about that period. And when I went to work in Graphics in 1991, it was sort of a transitional period. Uh, I, I, I don't think the owners, Kim Thompson and Gary Roth, were necessarily enamored of the punk rock uh, milieu that was uh, then emerging. But I, my background, I had a background in... Uh, music both music and, and arts promotion and as well as uh uh comics and it uh I think it served everyone well to uh um, have that all of that activity sort of happening about the same time.
0: Hmm. the therapy, man. This is like, you know, where the uh underground cartoon therapy roots from, right? This ability to, you know, Produce this work, and for it, uh, in time, to come into this collective of artists that have established their names in the Hall of Fame, as it were. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, it was. It was definitely. It was an exciting time to be in Seattle, and uh, I think it served uh, everyone to have these uh, amazing cartoonists and musicians and graphic designers um, all sort of flourishing at about the same time. And uh, I, having, I'm a Seattle native, and I sort of watched this develop from as a participant, and I never would have imagined it would have uh, developed the way it it, it, uh, it, it did. But uh, again, it was it was fun, and it was a wildly creative atmosphere. Um, uh, at about the same time, you know, personal computing was becoming more accessible and one of the pioneering tech enterprises, Microsoft, was uh, located here and they were uh, recruiting, you know, the affluent uh, uh, tech workers from all, from all over the world and, you know, Seattle Quickly shed itself of its reputation as being a bucolic we'll little fishing village to being, you know, uh, an international hub of uh, innovation.
0: Do you? Uh, I want to ask you about. Do you remember Zero Zero? Uh, Kim Thompson oh, yeah. was on Zero Zero. Do you feel like that was the platform comic to initiate new guys in? Like by well, doing
1: zero zero was one of several uh, uh, anthologies that we published. It was really affordable, as I recall. It was uh, you know eight to ten dollars, and we featured a lot of artists. But th- th- that was one of several. I I, I would say what really launched Fantagraphics imprint was the Love and Rockets, um, mm. and uh, And then, you know, piggybacked on that was uh, Hate, 8-Ball, and uh, the complete crumb comics. Um, It just grew exponentially from that point. Um, Zero-Zero was an important anthology, but there were uh, a lot of titles that we published, I think, that really resonated uh, uh, nationally, and and in some cases globally.
0: I uh, was wondering, you know... um my my, actually, my question about zero zero was like, when new people came into the book at that time, was that really like the way to get in was through zero zero? Because um, I remember like working with Matt Sylvie. You knew Matt Sylvie. Oh yeah, yeah, he's such a great guy, man. Uh, he gave me my first professional rejection letters, and I wanted to talk. <laughs> I wanted to talk about that on the show because. I was a hothead 25-year-old. Now I'm a head 48-year-old. <laughs> but at that point, you yeah. know, uh, when I was first submitting, that's how long ago, two Fantagraphics, uh, 98, 99, right there at that cusp. Um, and uh, Matt Silvey was firm but uh, understanding, you know? And the letters yeah. that he replied back to me uh, were really professional. I had sent... Uh, uh, submission to slave labor. Right. And they sent me a rejection letter written back in cra- blue crayon saying, <laughs> don't like it. You know. I, I, sort of, I, uh, I thought you would like that <laughs> on some level. <laughs> they call it my partner wasn't as understanding as I was. He was like, "Oh fuck no!" I was like, "Probably, man. Who had?" No,
1: I, mean, <laughs> I, mean, I think a lot of chances, but uh, that was certainly a seat of them. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I kind of, you know, I admire them and like them for that. But uh, you know, there were back in those days, there were you know you could just send in your artwork, and in fact that's how we ended up publishing eight ball was just uh, unsolicited submission from from Daniel clouds it was uh, actually Lloyd Llewellyn but uh, predecessor to eight ball uh, and uh you know that that just doesn't happen too much anymore you know i mean yeah submissions and you know like everything else it's uh sort of become institutionalized somehow. But uh, the other thing that can be said is back in the comics community was really, really small. I mean, basically everybody knew everybody. You, know. I mean, we published Jim Woodring, but he, he had been working in animation with that. With that. Uh, Jack Kirby,
0: you know. Oh, and, really? Uh, I didn't uh, know that. I didn't know Woodring yeah, worked yeah, with Kirby. Yeah, Animated Jack Kirby style. Holy shit! That's like blowing my mind. <laughs> that's kind of cool. Yeah. Who'd uh,
1: have yeah, it was, a it, was uh, it was a small sort of low-budget animation studio who's, I, I they didn't air that much work, but.
0: Wow. Uh,
1: like the uh, Saturday morning cartoons, like the the 18 or Mister T or things like that. And, I don't think any of the work that he did with Kirby was uh, uh, fully developed into a series. But uh, again, it was—it's it, a long way of saying it was just a really small world, and we all—we all sort of everybody at that point kind of knew if you were doing anything significant or if you were even slightly serious about cartooning, it was pretty. Uh, easy to come to the attention of publishers.
0: Mm. Now, that's not so much the case. You know, I remember 20 years ago when Dan Klaus put out 8-Ball. I thought it was like 15 or 16. It's the one with this uh, guy with a, in a toy robot suit or whatever. Oh, look. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: And it has this, uh, uh, it has this um, pamphlet inside of it called Modern Cartoonist. Oh, right. And that thing is so fucking hard. I just want to give that. I hope you pass this show to Dan and he hears this. I want to tell you, dude, that thing is so hardcore truth. I just, man, I fell to my knees and like was like, Dan Klaus, master. You know, it's like, please teach me. You know, like I understand, you know, that the cartoonist trade in America is this dog shit. You know.
1: Yeah, well, we, yeah. We we actually published that was an insert, but I think in April. 17th, <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. It was amazing. We, we
1: also we published that independently.
0: I mean, oh. that, was, that
1: was around until you know eight or ten years ago, and I think uh, yeah, that was definitely sort of a brilliant. Uh, oh. Of, uh, of, you know the comics industry and well, know, Dan was yeah. Dan did a lot of. Uh, Sort of in, insightful parodies of the of the comics business, but uh, um, yeah, he has he has brilliant insights. And true believer, you
0: know. I felt like a uh, to the core. Yeah, I that the part that I really admire about the modern cartoonist pamphlet is yeah. that uh, the way he mathematically breaks down the ratio of what your chances are of surviving as a cartoonist. <laughs> And then how it ends is just like, you know, you are, like, at this 2%, and those guys are fucked, too. And uh, (laughs) I just love the whole, it looks like, on one end, it looks like, oh, he's being a wise-ass, and that's some eight-ball humor. But it's a double entendre, right? Because it is, but it it also is the exact truth of the cartoonist in America, America especially right now, man, where it's just like, dude, you... if you don't have an any, you might be fucked. You know? <laughs> it's just like you need,
1: yeah, you know, I mean, it, you need it, a hook. It's
0: difficult, but I'd,
1: I'd like to believe it's still, uh, a viable, you know, vocation. I, uh, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of artists that struggle for years that have, uh, uh, since become very successful. Um, Ed Fisker comes to mind.
0: Yeah, Uh, I was about to drop uh, his name. out of
1: Pittsburgh. uh, One of the most successful uh, cartoonists that we publish now um, uh, sort of arose from obscurity and poverty in Tasmania and later Melbourne named Simon Hanselman. Mm. Um, And he's just doing exceptionally well with his Megan Mogg series. Um, I mean, there's a number of artists that... Have emerged in the last 10 or 12 years that I think have done pretty well for themselves. Charles uh, Forsman, who was, you know, just did uh, really modest uh, mini zines, had a couple of uh, uh, those efforts uh, adapted to Netflix series, uh, The End of the Fucking World, and I am not okay with this. He's he's doing exceedingly well. I think the template has changed in recent years to uh, uh, to uh, more media. You know, I, mm-hmm. comics are sort of, a, I, I think, and this is, I'm not sure, a great development, but I, comics have become sort of a means to an end, and I, uh, um, media is, is, has become the end. I mean, that, that can even be said for Daniel Klaus with his. Uh, um, Ghost World that was initially serialized with A becoming a uh, being adapted to uh, a major motion picture with uh, uh, Scarlett Johansson and Thor Burge. Oh,
0: so yeah. Was,
1: I mean, I think that made uh, I think that resulted in his uh, comics becoming viable. Uh, or his his career becoming uh, lucrative and that was largely a result of uh, uh, the uh, ghost World franchise
0: right yep i had an Eden doll edith doll like an 18 inch edith doll in <laughs> her little I'm sorry i had an 18 inch edith doll for a moment
1: right right yeah she's so, great uh, yeah i i, I it's still possible, though, to uh, uh, do well with just uh, the printed publications, like, uh, like I said, Simon Anselman, who now lives here, the, the Australian artist, has done exceedingly well. Yeah. Um, with his uh, uh, fanographic series, and supplements that income with uh, small self-published things. I mean. That's been another interesting development that I've that's emerged in the last uh, uh, five years. I think is when it's become pronounced. Is a lot of artists that have um, publishers are also producing self are also self publishing with uh, uh, mini comics and you know I think part of it's to supplement their income. But I think a large part of it is to just uh, participate in this uh, self-publishing and small press movement that's, I think, been a, uh, a driving force in uh, contemporary comics. When I, I'm approached regularly, certainly weekly, if not daily, about with cartoonists asking about how they break into the business and without hesitation I uh, suggested suggest that self publishing is probably the best avenue to uh, to start.
0: Yeah, it really is, man. To you get all your own monies <laughs> you know. You can design your own things. Everything's out there to put your book together. You well, know Well
1: that's that's sort of that's become uh, that's that's become the primary method that come to the attention of more substantial publishers. Yeah. Just get your work out there and, uh, you know, uh, to, to a lesser extent, self, uh, well, self-publishing Well, and to a lesser extent, social media, I think, uh, gets you in the public eye and sort of attracts the attention of larger publishers. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not easy. I mean, the competition has always been fierce, but, uh, you know, in the past decade or two, it's become a pretty crowded field. So,
0: More and more better artists are coming out at once. I've noticed. Sorry. I think there's more and more better artists coming out at once. Can you hear me okay?
1: Yeah, yes. <clears throat> I, I, I think there are a, an amazing number of wonderful artists yeah. emerging. Probably more... Artists that can possibly be accommodated by the existing publishers. um Yeah, I, that's definitely the case. That's why I'm. uh that, that's why I believe that self-publishing or, or small cooperative presses are uh, a viable alternative. Um, of course, the problem is making the comics and printing the comics is the easy part. Distributing them is. More is a little more challenging, particularly in this environment when we don't have the small press fairs and conventions, and, mm-hmm. you know, artist alleys where uh uh, uh self publishers can distribute their work um, more
0: accessible directly,
1: and then with uh, the struggles that uh all retailers have uh, encountered in recent months, just makes it uh a really high bar. Uh, but I, I, I think the current, current conditions are anomalous.
0: I, I yeah, yeah.
1: fully expect that, uh the, uh, the, pandemic will recede and things, you know, will return to some semblance of normal. You know, I'm not sure how long that will take or what, uh, uh, what that's going to look like. But, uh, I, I think right now is a really difficult time uh, to, to break into the business you know one of the one of the easiest and best ways to uh, approach publishers is in person you know and a yeah. whole mini comic to uh, a publisher at a convention or a, mm-hmm. you know at a party or you know a book signing Um I I see that happen all the time at art store, but of course all of that activity has been suspended for, you know, since at least March. So I I think right now everything's in kind of a holding pattern. I think almost all publishers are experiencing, you know, financial duress, which uh, makes it less likely to take a chance on a new, uh, on new artists and, uh, It's just not, uh, it's just not a good environment right now, but I I expect, I hope and expect that to change within, you know, six months.
0: I'm hoping too, man. That would be nice, Um, you know, but uh, I also like a good challenge, you know, so if there was ever a challenging time to, uh, to go at it, you know, uh, this is it.
1: Yeah, I you know, I... I That's a lot
0: of belief in your work, you know? And I I like that whole challenge, you know?
1: Under current conditions, I think the best avenue for younger cartoonists is uh, uh, to get their work visible is social media.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah.
1: I personally don't find that to be the most attractive method, but right now it might be the only method. uh, the only real viable method to get your workout is uh, is through uh, social media you know blogs and uh, electronic uh, platforms uh, that don't involve printing because because printing and uh, printing requires distribution and sales of hard copy comics that are uh, really uh, imperiled at the moment yeah again i want to emphasize that i'm, I'm confident uh, <laughs> it, it will come back but for uh at the moment it's it's a really uh
0: state of stasis call yeah.
1: it a challenging environment yeah. Understatement.
0: yeah it's like stasis pretty much man it is
1: yeah i mean i feel bad for a lot of artists that are trying to uh Self-publish and break into the business, and not just artists, musicians, uh, and
0: uh, everyone. You know,
1: uh, everyone, basically everyone. Yeah, trying to uh, really establish a career. Uh, it's it, it requires it will require a lot of patience and uh, perseverance. But uh, I found in in my long career with you know, not just comics, but music and visual artists that the cream tends to rise to the top. If you're committed and resourceful enough, uh, you're, uh, it's inevitable. You, your odds of becoming recognized are, uh, are, are, pretty good. I mean, we can go back to Robert Crumb's self-published Zap Comics and selling it out of a baby carriage, you know, in the Haight-Ashbury district in San Francisco, you know, literally, Selling them himself, and uh, now he's widely regarded as the world's greatest living cartoonist. But uh, you know, it took him a while to get to that point.
0: Yeah. uh, Yeah.
1: You know, I think I think you just have to be not just talented. You know, that you have to be talented. You have to be resourceful. You have to be ambitious. You have to. Pretty much be relentless. You know, I've seen a lot of great artists, in a variety of fields, uh, not succeed because they. It was it was difficult to uh, sort of process any kind of setbacks, and uh, and those are inevitable. And uh, I think I, I'd like to believe it's still possible. I I believe it's possible because I see it happen. You know, I haven't seen it happen in the last few months, though, you know. Yeah. I don't don't think that's, uh, I just don't think that's uh, really symbolic of, uh, you know, what I've seen over the last, uh, over the course of the last 40 years of my career.
0: Mm -hmm. You know what one of my favorite Arkham uh, stories uh, really is, is uh, that involves Greg Irons. Which one again? Um, it was the book about Greg Irons. I wasn't sure if it was you guys or like uh, Last Gasp that distroed it. It was a book about Greg Irons uh, that came out like. Oh in, yeah,
1: yeah, Greg Irons. We did, we did
0: those. Uh, yeah, we did that. It was an orange cover book. You call this art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's dude. What a beautiful book, man.
1: Yep. I I actually knew Greg <sighs> when I first uh. Broke into the business. He was the. Uh, he was a tattoo artist. Uh, he he shifted from. He was doing a lot of underground comics and uh, like slow death and a few others. And mm-hmm. Slow death, in the man. Bay Area oh and, and, God. And, uh, he was doing a lot of uh, psychedelic posters, but when that yeah, he's phenomenal. Movement sort of faded. He he shifted and became a tattoo artist, and he uh, um. Uh, apprenticed here in Seattle. He learned how to tattoo with the Seattle Tattoo Emporium. I had a little gallery not far from there, uh, sort of a punk neo-Dada aesthetic. And uh, Greg would come into uh, the space on occasion, and, uh, you know, he had a really... Th- I, I, I knew who Greg Irons was, but I, I just knew him as Greg. And, uh, you know, he was he was such a nice guy, and he was so... Modest and, uh, um, you know, uh, he'd support us financially and you know he said that he could. And, um, he was, uh, Greg Irons was a great guy, you know. and It was tragic to losing that early in his career, but uh, yeah, Greg was Greg was absolutely delightful.
0: Yeah, man. I he's... think he
1: died in about. I think he died in the mid. He died really young in uh, Thailand. I think he. Stepped off a bus, got slammed by a car, and that was that.
0: And yep, uh, That's what I read in that book. Yep. Right. <clears throat> it's a good book, uh, You Call This Art. You,
1: yeah, You Call This Art. Uh, really hard to find.
0: Man. Yeah, I had a copy it's... of it. I got off Fairfax uh, at some underground uh, yeah. little book comic shop off Fairfax in the Hollywood
1: it's certainly worth finding, and it does document that period that he spent in Seattle, the Seattle Tattoo Emporium. And, in fact, Seattle Tattoo Emporium is still in business, and they have uh, a lot of his uh, tattoo flash on display.
0: I like the... Brilliant artist,
1: brilliant cartoonist, great graphic designer and illustrator. And,
0: uh, yeah, he was uh, amazing. Uh, great
1: tattoo artist. Before it had become any uh, kind of... Uh, in, uh, before it had become, uh, customary for everyone to get a tattoo.
0: You know, um, one of the things I liked was, one of my favorite ones is this rare, uh, comic that had come out called Light. And it it was, had actual, like, color pages inside the underground comic, which was a very rare thing to find at that time, you know, um, I still it, have a copy yeah, of it. It was brilliant. You did covers
1: for Slow Death. I'm, I'm trying to remember some of the other titles. It'll, I'm sure it will come to me when this project comes. <laughs> uh, That's how it works, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. He's, uh, My uh, I,
0: I wanted to tell the one story was in that book was how he talks about Crumb being there for him right. uh, when everyone else was kind of closing him out of the whole already established circles specifically in San Francisco. Like you said, he ended up at Fillmore, um, right. and doing the Fillmore poster deal. But that was after, you know, last gasp had closed the door on, on him. And we're like, no, nah, there's no more room. And, uh, and that was, uh, you know, uh, crumb you know, talked to him and told him, you know, I love your work, man. Uh, you know, just keep going, and was, you know, supportive. And that's how he was when I met him, too, actually. he I, was. I,
1: I've heard that from so many cartoonists spanning generations. Even, you know, the second generation of underground cartoonists in, in, in San Francisco. He was very encouraging.
0: Yeah, and, uh, he was super amazing. Uh, yeah.
1: And, you know, what, what, what I've heard is that wasn't necessarily the kids with some of the other ZAP artists. No. They were no. sort of skeptical of these this new blood but Crumb was always uh encouraging and to this day you know uh will correspond with younger cartoonists and you know uh uh be encouraging or you know critical or you know uh uh mentor uh, he mentors a lot of young cartoonists and you know I I don't know if he knows this, but sometimes just a little bit of, uh, uh, encouragement from someone like that can, can really, uh, uh, challenge an artist to do better. And he's, uh, you know, again, he's, he's, he's by and large beloved in, uh, uh underground comets culture to this day with, uh, Despite the fact that a lot of those comics he published probably wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be, wouldn't, wouldn't get the uh, same kind of reception now that they did
0: then. Yeah, because it's like Mel Brooks putting program. out Blazing Saddles now. That shit's not yeah, going to yeah. fucking happen, well, you, know. I mean,
1: you know. it's funny how Crumb kind of gets a pass on some of
0: this stuff mm-hmm. he No, he's the No, he's the dom. I mean, that's the thing yeah. is, look, if you can't. You're not going to beat Manson. You're not going to beat Crum. It's the same level of, like, how heightened they are in their field. You know, these guys are... There is
1: a little pushback. You know, I will say my my 21-year-old daughter has, you know, uh, is really sort of critical of a lot of work like that. But when Mm -hmm. Crum comes up, her response is
0: well, he's Robert Crumb,
1: you know? Yeah,
0: I mean, you know, that's how it is.
1: I, you know, he gets it back, you know? Yeah, he, uh, yep. And uh, I, I think I think that might be uh, uh, recognition that a lot of that work that he was doing was parody, I, I, or uh, just sort of pushing the bounds of free expression or, you know, wh- wh- uh, satire. Uh, but I think uh, there's an acknowledgement Amongst almost everyone, that uh, uh, that Crumb is largely responsible for the environment that we have today. Not everybody, though. I mean, there has been some. There, there, there's a group of younger cartoonists that are really sort of questioning the, the sort of reverence of Crumb. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah.
0: It is and when you
1: look at his work now, out of context, you know thirty, forty, you know, even fifty years later, you know it's uh, y- y- you have to put it in the context in which it was created, but uh, again, I- I'm by and large, I'm pleased that crumb has sort of escaped the sort of critique that we uh, see from a lot of other um, that we see, you know aimed at a lot of other artists.
0: Do you think it's, like, inside job style, like, uh, to get um, people to, newer artists to look at Crumb in that light, in a way? Because I felt like, wasn't there, like, some kind of, like, you know, uh, scat between um, Crumb and Johnny Ryan for a minute or something like that? Like, he said he didn't like him.
1: You know, I, I, I I'm not sure...
0: Kind of of me I made in public.
1: I know that. Uh,
0: was that why, though? Is that you know, what happened?
1: It was sort of arousable. I, I, <laughs> I, I wasn't aware of that. I had heard from. The, uh, I, I think Johnny Ryan can be provocative, just for the sake of being
0: provocative.
1: <laughs> I'm unaware that there's, there's any uh,
0: animosity there. I, I, Did I you? Know oh well, crumb, I I heard it from both uh, Crumb and Ryan. They both told me they did. They were in it, um, but uh, the one thing, the w- perspective that Johnny Ryan had told me was uh he said uh, he was working a a show with Crumb. Crumb was across this gallery from him, and Robert Williams came up to Johnny Ryan was like, "Hey, he doesn't like you." <laughs> I just wanted to tell that story because. You know when I met Crumb, you know he's like, "Oh, you're better than Johnny Ryan," and you know right off the bat, you know, and I was like, "Thanks, Crumb." You know, I thought that was cool. So, that yeah, was yeah, cool compliment. Yeah, well,
1: by and large, I think uh, you know suspect I suspect there might. I, 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 I'm unaware of that history.
0: <laughs> I was wondering you what know, the I'm, I'm the beginning sure. of that was. If you knew that, what was the inside? I
1: had pretty good friends with uh, Robert. I'm closer to Williams than I am with Crump, just by virtue of geography, I suppose. that uh,
0: what's that like? Uh, what's that like being friends with uh, Robert Williams? That's got to be cool. He's
1: wonderful. I've yeah. never had anything other than you know great experiences with him. I think he's a delightful artist. I've always found him to be really easy to work with. You know, kind of exacting. He, he knows what he wants. But uh, I've I've worked with him many times, pretty closely and. Uh, uh, a number of projects over the years and, you know, I have I have mad respect for uh, for Robert Williams. I mean, he's a master. Had, he's a master. Had a wonderful experience
0: with him. He's a master for sure. Yes. Yeah, but, it's amazing. And
1: he's one of a handful of artists that have, uh, of cartoonists that have uh, been embraced by uh, the world of fine art, too. And it's, it's mm-hmm. no small feat. I mean, there's uh, nope. there's a built-in prejudice uh against uh narrative art in the fine art world and, and, and uh williams has managed to uh sort of uh that gap and, and really be uh 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 welcomed in that uh in, in, in both of those worlds that are not always the most welcoming situations but uh
0: yeah yep
1: yeah and Crumb can be rascal, and i think if you get you know, if you don't sort of know him, you know, uh, I, th- I think he can be—he can sort of be misleading. You know, uh, I mean, his intentions aren't always clear, but you know, he's a good guy. I've—I've—I've I've, I've,
0: uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I've never had
1: any problems with uh, Crumb or, you know, any cartoonist really that I can—that uh, I can think of. a nice thing know, one thing that sort of distinguishes cartoonists is, for the most part, their the fact that they work in a marginalized medium uh, like comics is really uh, uh, it, it checks the ego, so to speak. I think uh, the fact that their that you know their work is uh, not revered, I think, makes them. Uh, uh, it gives the egos in check and makes them, uh for the most part, cartoonists. I think you're personable and and uh, easy to get along with.
0: You think so? I
1: understand, though.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> uh, you no, know, no, nope. they don't, man.
1: I mean, I'd be hard <laughs> to trust I mean, I've, I've dealt with hundreds of, you know, I mean. Literally hundreds of cartoonists, probably several hundred, and I—I'd be hard pressed to think of any cartoonists that I really didn't like. I've liked some more than others, you know. Um, but uh, uh, generally speaking, I think they're—they
0: are a pretty likable lot. I like the whole perspective of the non-cartoonist. And their relationship with a cartoonist in their life versus the cartoonist and the uh, cartoonist that they're in the field with, you know, and the relationship between them. Uh, You know, it's not really, it's pretty, I've heard a lot of shit, man. (laughs) I'm not going to reveal that can of worms on this show, but I will tell you this, dude, that, um, you know, it does exist. There is a great disdain for a cartoonist against other cartoonists in the business. I don't know why it's like that, uh, Larry. I don't know why. Well,
1: I I, I sort of see a degree of that, but I, uh, I think for the most part, even the highest echelon of cartoonists is sort of at that top of a very low heat let's put it that way (laughs) yeah it's just right above uh, cum scraper (laughs) music yeah it's a very congenial crowd Mm -hmm. um i i generally find particularly locally everybody's generally supportive and um, collegial and uh not everybody's necessarily going to love everybody else but uh yeah, I, I, I don't get the sense that there's a great deal of animosity or jealousy, or, <laughs> you know, uh, professional backbiting at least.
0: Ha <laughs> ha! You and know easily. what? <laughs> I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna submit the book where I release all the filth in this book. I'm gonna submit it. <laughs> You're gonna like be like, oh, okay, this is why we're not publishing this, and it, it will get a good laugh out of it. And yeah. uh, and but you know. Um, I, I I like the positive ending and I agree that you know not everybody's against each other um, and this this episode's dedicated to Mike diana because uh he's my best friend and uh I think he's the best cartoonist out there um, with he may not have the finest line or anything like that but I think for what he's gone through and the endurance and the uh, the want to make a new underground, which is kind of what we were right. talking about throughout this thing, too, is to keep mm-hmm. going, you know? Um, and I, I'm totally into... Or if
1: you're a fan of graphics of my thing, he's been in a number of anthologies.
0: Yep. He,
1: you know, he got a rod deal down there. He did. Florida, obviously.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, no, he did.
1: Um, yeah, we, we sort of, we like that provocative approach to cartooning. And,
0: yeah, know, man. We embrace it and, you guys are very supportive all the way around with the different stylizations I've I've seen yep. it firsthand. And I want to thank you. We're at the top of the hour, guys. If it's just the bottom of the hour, I'm not sure how you say that, Larry. Help me out. Uh, yeah. Um, my anyway. Is, like my phone is running out.
1: We're
0: <laughs> <laughs> very near there. Thank you for right, being you with me. With you. Yeah, yeah, man.
1: hope it's at least wildly entertaining or informative or something. It's been Underground
0: Therapeutic, man. Thank you, dude. Very good. Talk soon. Talk Talk soon. Bye-bye. Don't you think? All right, guys. That was the Underground Cartoon Therapy episode. Thank you for joining us, Larry Reed. (laughs) Look, man, you can go in like a soldier into the cartooning field. You've been told what the reality is on this show, you know. I love this show. It was very great for the underground cartoonist, directly for you, but also to all artists out there in the field. You know how hacksaw it can get out there, so don't be a hacksaw. Be a you saw do you self publishing fucking works? Yeah, it's a pain in the butt. <laughs> there are flaws, blunders, flops, and occasionally a couple of hipsters skating by. <laughs> but that's art. You gotta go in headstrong. Don't fuck around. Don't take no for an answer. Believe in your shit. This is art. This is the life. I didn't even feel like uh, doing a podcast sometimes. But, you know, if I hadn't gone for it, I wouldn't have gotten golden episodes like this motherfucker here today. I want to thank you guys for joining in. Let you know I care about you. (laughs) And tune in. Some more Adam Air MD GED Underground Cartoon Therapy as we count down the final episodes, guys. This is it. We're coming to the big schlabong. Pack the bong. (laughs) And I'll see you soon. You've been listening to Adam Air MD GED Underground Cartoon Therapy.